would like to see the ends did not do it, did not murder, that the um, truth will be found. Whoever killed the parents will be found. It's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the O-type blood that was found at the crime scene and was used to convict Yens does not belong to him. It belongs to a male, but not Yens Sorin. There were two other males walking around in that house bleeding, and we have no idea who they are, and nobody's even tried to figure it out. Okay, so how are we doing this? I mean, I guess we'll go in, and he knows what we're here to talk to him about. It's a Tuesday morning in early February, and we're sitting in the parking lot at Greensville Correctional Center in rural southeastern Virginia. It's the largest prison in the state, housing over 3,000 men convicted of serious criminal offenses. It's an imposing site, sitting on 1,000 acres and secured by two razor wire fences and six armed guard towers. And it's where Robert Albright and William Shiflett ended up serving life sentences for the murder of a homeless man in Roanoke in April of 1985. Speculation that Albright and Shiflett were also involved in the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem is swirled around the case for decades. For one thing, the two crimes happened a week apart and were within 30 miles of each other. Both were gruesome stabbings. And Albright and Shiflett were picked up by a deputy while hitchhiking in Bedford, days after the Hasem murders. He questioned each man in the back seat of the patrol car, but let them go. The deputy later found a knife tucked between the rear seats. Then there were the allegations from volunteers at the raft shelter, where the men stayed the night after the Roanoke murder. Those volunteers told police they'd overheard Albright and Shiflett make incriminating statements about the Hasem murders. Finally, there's the new DNA evidence that suggests two unidentified men bled at the Hasem crime scene. Retired Charlottesville police detective Richard Hudson, who's reviewed this case, says that's key. There's two guys bleeding in there, and it's not Derek Hazeman, it's not Yen Soaring. In 1996, Yen Soaring's legal team asked for a new trial, based on the grounds that Bedford law enforcement and then-prosecutor Jim Updike withheld information from his defense about the two men. Albright and Shiflett were referred to as the drifters in the court filing, And while Yen's petition was eventually denied, the nickname for the two men stuck. News articles in local papers and the Washington Post reference the Drifters, and there's a chapter called The Drifters in Yen's book, A Far, Far Better Thing. The conjecture of the Drifters' involvement in the Hasem murders was amplified in 2009, after newly tested DNA evidence suggested two unidentified men were at the crime scene. But for all the talk about them, no one has ever talked to them. Neither Albright nor Shiflett has ever spoken publicly about the decades of public speculation on their involvement in the Hasem murders. And when we interviewed Detective Hudson, he said something that caught our attention. They weren't drifters. They both lived there. Um, But they were characterized by the Bedford Sheriff's Office as drifters because they were hitchhiking from Lynchburg to Roanoke or vice versa. So who were these guys? And if they lived in that area, did they still have family around? And if so, what did they know? We figured the first step was to find out where they are now, and if they'd considered speaking with us. 
quick search of the Virginia Department of Corrections website is how we found out both William Layton Shiflett and Robert Lewis Albright were incarcerated at the Greensville Correctional Center. But when we looked at the online records more closely, we were confused. William Shiflett's age was listed as 39. He would have been in preschool at the time of the crime. We reached out to the Virginia Department of Corrections to find out where the older William Shiflett was being held, or if he'd been released on parole. We learned that he had died behind bars in December of 2018. But the William Shiflett incarcerated at Greensville had the same middle name. He was William Shiflett's son. We used the prison's email system to send messages to both him and Albright, asking if they'd speak with us. We didn't hear back from Albright. But William Shiflett responded hours later, writing, I'd be more than happy to talk to you, but only in person, as I don't feel comfortable talking on the phone. If you can arrange a meeting, then I will be more than happy to talk to you. You can call me Will. I'm okay with that. Get back with me and let me know when we can meet. Sincerely, Will. Will was four years old when the Hasems were murdered, and when his father was arrested for the Roanoke murder. A Roanoke police report mentions Shiflett telling authorities he had a wife and a young son. We didn't know if Will ever knew his father or had any contact with him, but we figured he would at least have some basic information about his extended family. So we set up a media interview through the prison and drove the two hours to the Greensville Correctional Center to meet Will Shiflett. What's like our game plan? We go in, ask him about himself first. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in any conversation, you just want to establish rapport with somebody and, and sort of get comfortable, explain what we're doing, explain how we came across his dad's name, tell him why we're hoping to talk to him, say, I think the main thing is we want to understand, we want to get some information about who these guys were. Like, they're described as these drug-addicted drifters and murderers, but like, once again... There are people, they had a life before these crimes. They, yeah. He has, you know, here's a child that one of these guys had. All right, so we want to ask him about his relationship with his dad, for sure. And then we want to ask if his dad said anything about Elizabeth Haysom or the murders of the Haysoms. His mom. And then, yes, also ask if there's any other family members or friends that might know more about him that we could talk to. Yeah, I think that's, um, for me, that seems like the main thing. I mean, we hope that he knows something, but he was really young when this happened, so he may not have firsthand information unless his dad told him something. But if his mom is still alive and is available somewhere, we want to track her down. So I see him as being just a, a, a first connection that hopefully is going to lead us to some other people who may be able to shed more light. He also could tell us what his dad's blood type is. Do you think he knows? That is so interesting. Yeah. Let's ask him. Maybe. We'll see how it goes. Even on an official media visit, getting into a medium or high security prison is an ordeal. There is a preliminary background check before the visit's scheduled. And once on site, there's paperwork to fill out. Then you wait to go through two separate metal detectors and a manual pat-down. Then you go through a series of gates, one locking behind you before the next one opens. We were escorted to a small room, no bigger than 8x8, 
cramped with a desk and several chairs, and within a few minutes, Will was brought in, and the guards left, shutting the door behind them. Will is about six feet tall with an average build. He has a shaved head and blue eyes. He was wearing a prison-issued shirt and jeans. We knew Will was being held on a unit for sex offenders. Online court records show he was convicted of nonviolent sex crimes with minors between the ages of 15 and 18 a decade ago. But we didn't know any other details about what he'd done. And sitting in a tiny room across from him, we worried about how he'd react to our questions about his dad's crime and any possible connection to the Hasem murders. But we quickly realized Will was ready to talk. He described a close relationship with his dad, and some of his stories were shocking. Because the prison doesn't allow any recording devices, we asked Will to speak with us again by phone after our visit so we could record our conversations. He said he'd call us the next morning. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from an inmate at the Virginia Department of Corrections, Greensville Correctional and Work Center. One of the first things we asked Will when we met him was if he had any fond memories of his father. And the story he told us was from Christmas Eve in 1985, the year of the murders, when Will was five years old. He said his father showed up at his grandma's house after breaking out of jail. The cops showed up, and Shiflet took his son hostage. Will escaped by biting his father on the shoulder, and police shot Shiflet in the front yard. We asked Will why he considered this to be a fond memory. Because it was Christmas time. It was one of my favorite times of year. That's, that's why I said it was fond, because I thought he was, you know, coming home, and we was all going to be a family. Will was his father's only child. He said his parents met when they were both going to community college. We asked him about his mom, and he said she had died from a drug overdose when he was 16. Will said he found her body, and he suspects foul play. Will says he was then raised by grandmothers on both sides, but stayed in close contact with his father. He was strong in his family. That was, that was one, of his, one of his values. You know, he wanted to make sure that... He, wanted, he didn't want me to follow in his footsteps, but obviously he knew where that got me. Will started serving his current sentence in 2012, and after several prison transfers, he ended up at Greensville Correctional Center, the same prison as his father, where they were able to see each other several times face-to-face before his father died. He pursued, he pursued that with the warden. He had a, a good rapport with the warden and was able to set up to where him and I could visit with each other. As a matter of fact, the last visit we had was was September of this year he died, and it was in the room that I met with y'all in. We asked Will if he'd ever talked to his father about the Roanoke murder that sent him to prison for life. He said they had, and his father told him that he and Albright came into some money after receiving tax returns that March in 1985, and they wanted to party. They went to Roanoke and stayed at a hotel with a bar across the street. My dad met a prostitute there. Um, he ended up taking her back to the room where she robbed him while he was in the bathroom. Will said his father went looking for his stolen money and the prostitute, and that's when he ran into the homeless man. And Shiflet said he taunted him about the robbery. He said, I got your money, and she got your money, everybody got your money. And it kind of set my dad off because he'd been drinking. And so he snapped. 
Authorities caught up with Albright and Shiflett in Huntington, West Virginia, less than a week later. They were arrested and charged with capital murder and the stabbing death of 58-year-old Marvin Milliken. Albright pleaded guilty to capital murder and multiple counts of robbery, but Shiflett went to trial and was convicted of murder, abduction, and robbery. Both were sentenced to multiple life sentences in prison, but with the possibility of parole. Will said his father did know he and Albright had been named by Soaring and his legal team as possible suspects in the Haysom murders. And he said his father wasn't happy when Jens was bringing their names into the case. The Soarings were going around saying that my dad did it, my dad did it, that he wasn't here, they couldn't have been here. So my dad was doing everything he could to try to get at Soarings to kill him. Because he kept rubbing my dad's name in the dirt and everything else. And my dad didn't like that. According to Will, William Shiflett was so angry he was willing to pay to have Jens killed. I didn't find out about the hit until I spoke to Mr. Sorens myself. In 2013, a year after Will was sentenced, he was sent to Buckingham Correctional Center in Central Virginia. Jens was in the same prison. And Will says they ended up housed in the same building. So he was a little scared when I first met with him because he thought that I was out to collect the money that his and my dad had put on. Will says he confronted Jens one day about the allegations that Jens was repeating about his father's involvement in the Haysom murders. I was like, what does that have to do with my dad? And he said that when he first heard that my dad could have been involved. He went with it. And he said he stuck with it ever since. I gave him that. Will says after that conversation, he and Jens struck a truce of sorts and even worked out together. We actually became friends. So through this whole thing, but I told him, I was like, look, I said, if you're going to deal with me, cut all the BS out of it and just lay everything on the table. You know, I told him, I said, this is me, this is who I am. I was transparent with him. I told him to be transparent with me. All you got to do. Will had plenty of information about how his father felt about the allegations, but we wanted to hear Albright's story as well. When we visited with Will at the Greensville prison, we knew that Albright was still incarcerated there, but he had refused our request for an interview. Yen's attorney, Steve Rosenfield, had also asked to speak with him a few years earlier. Albright wrote back that he had suffered a head injury and wouldn't be able to help. Albright's old court files gave us some insights. In a sworn statement to a Roanoke police detective on April 13, 1985, Albright describes how he and Shiflett ambushed Marvin Milliken in downtown Roanoke a week earlier and forced him to undress. Albright tells the Roanoke police officer that Shiflett took Milliken's wallet, but didn't find any money inside. Albright says that Shiflett threw the empty wallet and then went off, kicking Milliken. He says both men started stabbing Milliken, but he wasn't aware Milliken's penis was cut off until the officer asked him about it. In letters written in the years after his guilty plea, Albright says he's anguished. In a January 1987 letter, less than two years after his guilty plea, 
Albright wrote to the judge, who presided over his sentencing. I realized that what I did was very wrong and terrible, but I needed help, he wrote, from the mental health ward of Mecklenburg Correctional Center, where he'd been sent after one of several suicide attempts. I needed help when I was 19 years old. I started drinking and doing drugs. Albright concludes the letter asking the judge to reconsider. My request is for more psychological help or the electric chair. Please don't let me take my own life. I've committed enough wrong in the eyes of God. And nearly 20 years later, in 2004, he writes again to the court, this time asking for parole. If not, give me the death sentence, because I cannot see spending the rest of my life in prison. We asked Will if his father had ever talked about Albright, and he said his father had told him Albright moved to Lynchburg from Chicago in the 80s, and they met through work. Somehow they met through a job they were doing, and they became friends. We started hanging out. He was living in. Well, he was living in Lynchburg at the time. They always hung out. They were, they were like best friends and whatnot. Will says his dad told him they liked to party together. He was outgoing, wild, kind of like my dad myself. We asked Will if he'd ever met Robert Albright since they were in the same prison. He said he knew an Albright, but he didn't realize it was the same man who committed murder with his father. I've been seeing this man every day for two years. I've known this man every day for two years. Wow. (laughs) He said he didn't put it together until we told him. And Will told us he saw Albright regularly at a Christian men's group they both attended in prison. I went over there, you know, just, like I said, with the intentions of coffee and donuts. And he sat at my table. And just listening to him talk, you know, I could tell that he was different about everything else. From the, the, the Albright that I know, he's a, you know, he's a outgoing person. He's, you know, a devout Christian. He's got a calm and peaceful aura about him. Will confirmed what Albright had told Steve Rosenfield about suffering a brain injury. Will said Albright has trouble speaking. We asked Will if he would ask Albright about the Haysom murders and how he felt about the allegations against him and his father. We hoped Albright would reconsider speaking with us once he knew we talked to Will. A few days later, Will called us back, and he said he had talked to Albright, and he said the conversation didn't go well. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from... An animated Virginia Department of Corrections, Greensville Correctional and Work Center. I thought that y'all were trying to get to know him as a person and not as what how the how the media had portrayed them back in the 80s. He kept telling me I was full of shit. If that's how you feel, that's how you feel. I respect that. But at the same time, don't disrespect me by sitting there saying that I'm a fool for talking to y'all or by calling y'all names because he doesn't even know y'all. You know what I'm saying? That same day, we received an email from Albright denying any involvement in the Haysom murders or any connection to Elizabeth Haysom. He wrote, Sir, my name is Robert Albright, and the reason I don't need to talk to you is because I don't know what I could tell you. 
I did not commit that crime. I commit my crime in Roanoke, Virginia in 1985. I don't know that family. In our first interview with Will, we told him we were trying to find out more about his father and Albright and to once and for all answer the question about whether they were involved in the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. Along with sharing stories about his father and his extended family, Will mailed us a few pictures of his father. The oldest photo is a Polaroid from the early 80s, yellowed with age. William Shiflett is in his early 20s. He's about six feet tall with an athletic build, brown hair, and a mustache. He has the same blue eyes as his son, and the resemblance is obvious. Will also sent old newspaper clippings about the Roanoke murder from the 80s that his father had kept until his death. In one of those articles, William Shiflett had underlined the word drifters, and above it wrote B.S. Will also told us about a chest of letters his father kept in prison, including correspondence with a woman named Elizabeth, who was also in prison. Next, on Small Town Big Crime, the search for the letters from Elizabeth and a clue that could turn the case upside down. Uh, We now knew very specifically that Soaring could not have left his blood, but more importantly, it said, so somebody else was at the crime scene with typo blood. Do you know what your dad's blood type is? We're trying to rule out people who couldn't have been... Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for Season 2, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.